Now, in the bulletin, um, the title is, and I think this is a great pastor's title, All Things to All Men Till All Men Say Amen. But I want to begin by using an illustration that um, Calvin brought up, modifying it a bit. But as a background, <clears throat> missiologists and um, social scientists have a tendency to see the concept of worldview as glasses that each people, tongue, tribe, and nation looks at the world that is their surrounding culture. Now, Calvin basically says, yes, there is a certain amount of truth to the fact that we all look at the world through glasses, but he would say that those glasses are inbuilt into us and they distort the reality of what is out there uh, the truth of God's word as we could see it in the external world. And I think that there's some tr- uh, truth to that, that um, everybody looks at the world distorted because of sin. Sin is like a fog, and we can't see clearly because our hearts are hardened. Well, Calvin says that the way that we can see clearly is to take off the glasses of our culture. You know, Calvin actually said it was our eyes are are actually blinded and fogged. But to take these glasses off, so to speak, and to put on the spectacles of the Scripture because only as we look at the world as God tells us, it's all about what it's all about. Through the eyeglasses of the scripture can we make sense of what's going on in the world. Now, building off of this um, concept, we want to look at this because it's built into the warp and the woof of the scripture that God wants us to see as God sees, but yet at the same time, as um, Mark was saying, the whole of the earth sees things in such a multi, multitudinous different ways. How can we reach these people? Postmodernists say everyone sees the world in their own little box, and there's really, it's impossible to have any uh, universal truth. Well, we know that that's not true. Everybody looks at one world created by one God and one Father, but they distort it. And the only way we can see clearly is to see it through the Scripture. Now, that's what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to say in this passage, every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, and he uses four different uh, groups, which we'll see here in a bit, we need to be able to adjust our way of looking at the, the universe. The glasses that we put on are the glasses of Scripture, but we still have a very strong tendency to distort what we're looking at because of our cultural background, and we need to put ourselves in their shoes, so to speak, to walk a mile in the moccasins of each group, so to speak, or to adjust our eyeglass prescription so that we can see the world as they see it in order that we can present the gospel in this undistorted way to them. And you say, no, wait a minute, I thought the gospel was one for everyone. Yes, it is. But people look at the gospel with different priorities, with different emphases. Um, They look at it through 
the value system that they have been brought to. And to be able to reach them, we need to put ourselves in their, in, in their shoes. So that kind of bring, brings us to the big idea that our Lord desires for us to disciple every ethnic group, every tribal group, every language group of the earth. And to do so, we need to put on their clothing to adjust our eyeglass prescription, so to speak, to be able to see the world as they do. So that when we present the gospel, they're not stumbling over external things that are really non-essentials, but they're stumbling over one thing, and that's the gospel of Jesus and the word, the essential aspects of the word of God. You see, the, Paul sees the world not as individuals. Now, this is a shock to us from the West. Paul sees the world as us versus them. He was a Jew. The us are the Jewish people. The, the them are the Gentile peoples. Whenever you see the word ta ethne or goyim in Hebrew, in the background is always the idea that there's linguistic and cultural diversity. So it's not just, oh, you Gentiles, all you individuals. He's saying, all you Gentile peoples praise the Lord. Abraham had uh, said that. He said that um, in the Abrahamic covenant, well, God gave it him the Abrahamic covenant. And he says, all the mishpahot, that's the clans, the families of the, of the earth will be blessed through him. And then in another version, he says, all the goyim, all the nations. If you know anything about, uh, if you have a Jewish background, a goy is a person that's non-Jewish outside in another ethnic group. All the goyim, all the nations, tongues, tribes, <clears throat> all the clans and the families of the people, God desires that they be discipled. So Paul's passion is to, in following his master, he wants his multi-ethnic sheep found. Can I remember, that's a huge difference between the Old Covenant and the New. The Old Covenant, the gospel was enclosed in one culture, in one language. We, ethnologists and missiologists call that mono-ethnic, one people. But now, since the coming of Christ, yes, there's one king, and yes, there's one overarching holy nation, but within that, as John Calvin said, there's one nation, but all the peoples. That's the goal. His goal is to fill the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. Now, in that context, I want us to, <clears throat> to um, learn a little acronym. And that's what I call the thumb principle. So hold up your hand, and um, you've got five <clears throat> fingers, and it spells, this acronym spells thumb. So first, tribal peoples. Now, if you're in most people groups of the earth, they start with the thumb. We start with our first finger. A lot of people groups, they start with the thumb, so they call it the thumb principle. Tribal peoples are unreached. There's still a large group, not as many as there used to be. H stands for Hindu. U stands for unreached secularist. The biggest group is Chinese. M stands for the Muslim peoples, and B stands for the Buddhist peoples. This is this multicultural, multi-ethnic mass that will stand at the throne in Revelation 7. 
He says, a great multitude that no one can count. Where is he getting that language from? He's getting back from Abraham's covenant. And so in this same broad sweep of of history, starting with Abraham's covenant, to the end, every tongue, tribe, people, and nation will be represented there. Jesus says, disciple the nations. Literally, that's what the Great Commission teaches. It doesn't say, make disciples of. That's speaking individuals. He doesn't say that literally in the Greek. The Greek um, verb is to disciple, if you want to put it that way. And what is the object of the to disciple, the verb? Panta ta ethne, all the people groups. It's taken directly from the Greek version of the Old Testament. God wants to bless all the nations, ethnic groups of the world. So his passion is to fill the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. Now, to do that, we want to, we want to look at um, two major points. We're going to look at the, this whole concept of developing a strategy to be able to deliberately adjust our eyeglasses, to adjust our clothing style, so to speak, um, so that we can look at the world as the peoples look at the world and then adjust our strategy, our approach, so that we can reach them without causing them to stumble over anything else but the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to look at this in a broader context in the, in the whole tenor of Scripture. And then we want to look specifically on how Paul, I'm losing some things here, let's just get this organized, how Paul sees this uh, in our context in 1 Corinthians. And then we're going to end up with a challenge, an applicative challenge. So in a broad context of the scripture, Paul is strategizing, and strategizing is not evil. A lot of people think that, well, you know, my mom was charismatic. I grew up, um, I was baptized Presbyterian, grew up Baptist, became a Quaker. You know, the standard joke about that is if if you're Presbyterian, you get sprinkled. If you're Baptist, you get dunked. And if you're Quaker, if you don't know anything about Quakers, Quakers don't do the sacraments. They get dry cleaned. So if there's any kind of merit in, in, um, you know, in uh, baptism, I've got it. I've been sprinkled, dunked, and dry cleaned. <clears throat> so the, the, the point is, is that um, Paul is flexible. And planning is um, not evil. Charismatics, my mom was charismatic. You know, in this whole process, you know, there was this little charismatic thing um, added into it when I was growing up. And charismatics have a tendency, go with the Spirit. And if you plan, it's wrong. They say, well, that quenches the Spirit. Well, Paul had a plan, had a strategic plan. If you look at um, Acts 16, 3 to 10, I won't go there due to um, some time, but... um, he clearly seemed to have had a plan. It says he was desiring to go to the province of Asia, and the Spirit stopped him. You can notice, plan, flexibility. Then he wanted to go to the east, to Bithynia. Now, we know from 1 Peter, that's where Peter ended up. But the Spirit stopped them. Then they ended up in Troas. And while they were in their Troas, probably fasting before the Lord, Lord, where do you want us to go? You've hindered us in our plan. He got a vision. And he sent him to, um, to Europe. Moved him to the west. Um, even in 2 Corinthians 1.17, the Corinthians were 
um, criticizing him for being really weak on his planning. You know, they said, well, you said yes, and you meant no. And um, when you said no, you meant yes. And he said, no, my yes is my yes, and my no is my no. He says, but God hindered me. I need to be flexible and trust him. So there was a plan and there was flexibility. I mean, you can see this whole thing of planning and flexibility in the Old Testament. Um, both the Old and the New Testament holds this plan. Moses sent out planners and researchers. What, are the, what do we normally call them? The spies. Those, if you want to think about it sociologically, these were uh, what um, church planners called doing demographic studies. They went through and they checked out the population. And they came back and they were terrified. These guys are giants. You know, these, remember, the Israelites were slaves. They didn't eat much. Probably maybe average of five foot one, five foot two, five foot three. And the, these guys living in the land were you know, six foot up to nine feet. They were terrified. They did demographic studies. They did studies of the urban centers. The walls were so high that we couldn't breach them. We felt like grasshoppers. They were doing this kind of research. They didn't allowed the Spirit of God to motivate them. They allowed fear to motivate them, but they still were doing the research necessary. Joshua did the same. Solomon commends research in planning. Proverbs 13, 16, he just says, every prudent man acts with carefully thought through knowledge. Okay, that's my um, paraphrase. But he goes on and says in Proverbs 14, verse 15, the naive believes everything, but the prudent man considers his steps. We don't just go off half-cocked as a naive man. I've done that before. I've been a missionary in South Africa for nine years. Before that, in Austria for almost two years. Um, I was a missionary in the South. My wife is from Jackson, Mississippi. I went to Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. I think your pastor's from Bacombe, is that correct? Mississippi. So that's a cross-cultural experience if you've lived down in Mississippi. I'm from, I'm sorry, I'm California. I'm a Cali boy. Um, then, you know, the Lord moved us to, to Korea for six years. So we've been all over. And I've been known for making some naive decisions. But God says a naive person just does what he wants to do and how he figures out and thinks the Spirit's leading him and goes off half-cocked sometimes. God says, a wise man carefully considers his steps. Jesus said that when he preached the gospel. He says, what would you think about a person who builds a tower and doesn't sit down and carefully reckons up the cost and figures out if he's got the resources to finish it? And if he um, starts the tower and doesn't finish it, everyone will mock him. Well, he was applying it in that sense to disciple becoming a disciple of Jesus. In other words, becoming saved. There's no difference between a disciple and being saved in the New Testament. They need to do research. They need to think it through. My wife was confronted with the gospel. She grew up in the old Presbyterian church, U.S., the old liberal church in the South. Never heard the gospel one day. She was confirmed when she was 12. They gave her a Bible. She never looked at it one minute until she was 24 years old. And at the bottom of the of her depression, somebody said, Nancy, you need Jesus. And so for um, 
that night, she went home and just said, Lord, if you're real, show me. And she started uh, rummaging around in her closet for some reason, and there was that Bible she never saw. (sighs) Blew off the dust, literally, that's what she said. And she began to read. And guess what? The very first book she opened up to read, Ecclesiastes. For a postmodern girl, raised in Jackson, Mississippi, gone to Ole Miss, that ministered powerfully to her. And so she started loving Jesus and reading the Bible, but she knew she wasn't saved. So many people, she went to the pastors of the different denominations and said, am I saved? Oh, yeah, you're saved. She hadn't counted the cost, done the research, and thought it through carefully. When she, one year later, surrendered to the lordship of Jesus on Easter, the night before Easter, um, 1989, I think it was, she was changed because she did her research. The Holy Spirit caused her to research, think it through, count the cost, um, think through that all that's necessary. Well, that's what God is challenging us to think through and to research. So this, this idea of a strategic plan and research is not something alien to the, to the, to the gospel. So the point, I think I put it up there, evangelism is, evangelism is not complete without a church planting in conversion growth strategic plan. What would have happened if Billy Graham had done Paul's strategy? Paul went to Ephesus. He stayed there for three years, and he founded a movement that by the, t- the, the time they were finished at Ephesus, the whole of the province of Asia had heard the gospel. They trained up and sent out evangelists and church planners all over the whole in three years. What would have happened if Billy Graham had done that? He'd gone to New York City and stayed there for three years and planted, you know, 200 followers, uh, followers of, uh, communities of followers of Jesus. And then to L.A. and then to Calcutta. I think the fruit would have been much greater. Only 7% of the people at Billy Graham Crusades, they say, that made a decision stuck with it. Paul's plan was different. He had a strategic plan, and that's what he wants to do. He wants us to see that strategic plan. So look at chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, and let's see what he says about his plan. Now, 11, chapter 11, verse 1, is actually the ending of that whole section of chapter 9 and 10. He just says this, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Well, what did Christ do? He left his riches in glory and became incarnate as a Jewish baby. Grew up speaking um, probably Aramaic. He could read Hebrew because of his culture. You know, we see that in Luke. He opened up the scripture and, and uh, read from the Hebrew Bible. Um, most likely he spoke Greek. Um, Several of the, the sayings of Jesus are very difficult to translate back into Aramaic. He probably was speaking Greek. And he probably spoke Latin. Um, just down the road was a huge Roman colony with lots of Latin speakers. He probably spoke Latin, very possibly, or Greek with Pontius Pilate. He was a man who became incarnate in his culture, his own culture, and learned something of the cultures of the people surrounding him. He came with a strategic plan. Paul says, follow my example because I follow Jesus' plan. So Paul developed a principled, 
pragmatic flexibility. Let's all say that because that's a big mouthful. Principled, pragmatic flexibility. That was his plan. It was flexible. It was pragmatic. But it was principled. And we're going to see how that works out. So he says, my goal in my church planting effort in the Roman Empire, he was in the eastern sector of the Roman Empire, my goal is to win the most um, people as possible. So let's look at chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. He says, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Now, I'm reading from the NIV. I grew up NASB and switched to the NIV 84. I don't like the, the new NIV because it's brothers and sisters. It, well, anyways, okay, I won't go into all the reason why I don't like it. But I use the NIV, so it's very similar to what the ESV is saying here. He says, I'm a freeman. Jesus was free. And he voluntarily became and took on the form of a slave, of a servant. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, I am free, but following my Lord's example, I take upon my targeted groups various cultural glasses and clothing to be able to reach them. So he's going to say, well, I wanted to... I, in my approach, I adjust my approach to Jews, to Jewish proselytes, to those who are, um, I can't even read it, I have to look down at him, idol-worshipping people groups, the Gentiles, and then I am going to call the weak, the group of the weak, as um, Hellenistic n- nominal Jews. So each one he had a plan to reach in a different way, in a different means. So the goal to win the most possible. Now we're going to see at the end, he repeats this theme, and this is called in the technical term an inclusio or an envelope, and he says, I do this so that I can win some. Now I'm going to, when we come there, I'm going to suggest that that might be a bad translation. I'm going to suggest it means to win targeted ones. That's where we're going. He's, he's flexible, he's principled, and he's pragmatic. And again, remember what the goal is. The goal is to fill the earth with the Father's glory as the waters cover the sea. Now, that's repeated twice in the Scripture. And Paul, in this context, he repeats that theme of glory, chapter 10, verse 31. We'll see it. Isaiah chapter 11, 9, in the context of the ministry of the coming Messiah, he says, their goal is to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That is taken up again in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, 10 verses after that passage where Paul says where the righteous man is justified by faith. 10 verses later, he says, the goal is that the earth would be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Now, do we see the earth filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea? No. Now, I grew up in a situation in Southern California um, in which we were told that Jesus was going to come in 1988. In fact, I remember a book. I think his name was William Edgar or something like that. I don't know if it, what his first name. But it was 88 reasons why Jesus will come in 1988. 
Now, obviously, that book fell to the bottom of the bestseller list in 1989. So he comes out with the next book, um, 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Again in 1989. How, how many ever saw that book? Anybody ever see the, those books? Oh, I see a hand now. Hand or two. They fell flat. Why? We've forgotten the goal. Jesus isn't going to come until all the nations are disciples. He says, and the gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed to all the nations, and then what? And then the end will come. We haven't even begun to proclaim it. He says to disciple them, not just to proclaim. So nothing, what Paul is trying to say is, nothing must alienate a targeted group except the message concerning Christ and him crucified. That's why he said to the Corinthians, he says, I'm determined of one thing, to know only one thing, and that's Christ. Now, a lot of people say, well, what about the rest of what he says? Well, I'm going to say that I think that most likely what he's saying is, I want to know one thing, Christ. And then he has this little word, chi. Probably here it means an explanation or a further explanation, and especially him crucified. That doesn't neglect the resurrection. But he wants to know Christ. He wants to present Christ. That's the stumbling block. And that's exactly what the Jews stumbled over. Christ and him crucified. And the, the um, Greeks stumbled over the fact that Jesus was the wisdom of God. They thought it was foolishness. But that's the only thing that we, we want to allow people or we want to desire to people to stumble over is Jesus and him crucified. Him raised from the dead. So our, our strategic method following Paul and following Jesus is to put on the glasses, so to speak, adjust our prescription so that we see the world as each people group sees the world. Um, we put on their clothing. And I was going to put up a picture, but I didn't. But Hudson Taylor was the one who really took this to, uh, to heart. In fact, Hudson Taylor almost poisoned himself to death because he dyed his hair black and he wore the long pigtail, a single long pigtail of a Mandarin scholar, and wore the, the clothing of a scholar so that he could uh, approach the Chinese people. Um, the, those who are contextualizing, putting the gospel in the context of all the peoples of the world, they literally are growing their beards out like a, a, a Muslim imam, learning to walk and talk like a Muslim imam, wearing the clothes of a Muslim imam, so that when they go... There's be no external stumbling block but the gospel of Jesus, the person of Christ. So he says, first of all, to the Aramaic-speaking Jews, I become as a Jew. Now, we can see that in his example. Paul spoke, in fact, wrote a whole book against circumcision, Galatians. But what did he do to Timothy when he first... Uh, had Timmy invited Timothy to join his team. In Galatians, he preached against circumcision. What did he do to Timothy? He circumcised him. Why? Because Timothy's mom was a Jewess and his dad was Greek, so he never was circumcised. But to join Paul's team, where did Paul go to first? To the Jews. These are, um, especially the, the Hebrew Aramaic speaking Jews, they were very, very certain that no person that was uncircumcised would be ever come across the threshold of their home. And Timothy was raised as a Jew. You can see that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. He says his mother and his grandmother brought him up in the Holy Scriptures. And he circumcised them. He adjusted 
the external um, aspects of the, uh, of the form of appearance to not cause anyone to stumble among the Jews. And you say, no, wait a minute, didn't he compromise the gospel? No, he didn't compromise the gospel, because what did he say? In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but keeping the commandments of God. Doesn't, it's, it's neither here nor there whether you're circumcised. It's if you're commanded to be circumcised in order to, to gain a special merit before God, that's what makes circumcision evil. But circumcision in and of itself. And you can see this um, when he took um, vows as a Nazarite at the end of the book of Acts. They told him, say, Paul, we are told that you preach against this temple and against the um, Jewish customs. Now remember, the last guy who got uh, captured by the Pharisees for preaching against the temple, what happened to him? He got stoned. What was his name? Stephen. And Paul probably took over some of the mantle of the leadership of that group of Hellenistic uh, Greek-speaking Jews. And Paul didn't want to get stoned, and he wasn't willing to um, cause any other stumbling block to the gospel but the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So he grew his hair out as a, and then cut it off and burned it on the altar with an offering as a thank offering to God so that they would know that he, he's not against the customs of the Jews. Now, how would we apply that for today? Does this same kind of thing apply for Islam? You know, they're the most close analog, the closest analogy to Orthodox rabbinic Judaism of Jesus' day. Um, they prayed three times a day. Muhammad originally said, pray three times a day towards Mecca. And then when the Jews didn't accept Muhammad as a prophet, he says, okay, we'll chop those guys' heads off, literally. Five to 900 heads of households had their heads chopped off. Their women were, uh, were trafficked. And he says, now let's pray five times a day to make those Jews jealous and move and, and change the direction of prayer towards Mecca. Um, giving of money. Did the Jews give money in an ostentatious way? Yeah. Did they uh, pray in an external ostentatious way? Yes. The five pillars of Islam and the, uh, the key pillars of practice of Orthodox Judaism are very similar. Can we use this same approach to the Muslims? I become as a Muslim in order to reach them. I suggest yes. Okay, now there's some big controversy over how much and how far we go but we should dress like a Muslim, grow our beard out like a Muslim if we're working with Muslims. Um, Phil Parshall, who wrote a, wrote a book, which or the original title was called New Paths for Muslim Evangelism. He worked in Bangladesh. He actually said he had to learn how to talk and to walk in a way that doesn't make him automatically seen as an American imperialist. He practiced how to walk and talk and clothe himself and grow his beard out like a holy imam of the Muslims, so that they would stumble over nothing but the cross of Jesus. I think that the same thing applies for Muslims. Well, now, what about Buddhists, tribals, and Hindus? That's where it gets more complicated. You can look on the websites, and there's a huge controversy going. As far as possible, 
look like a Hindu. They're even doing whole videos. Um, Create International is doing whole videos on how to contextualize worship where you make it look as much like a Hindu satsang worship service, but worship only Jesus. Externals look like the Hindu. And um, in the video, the people were being interviewed, and um, one person who um, was interviewed said that one lady who was in, had come to know Jesus through this said, if that's the way it means that I can worship um, uh, bhakti, um, become a bhakti yesu, bhakti means a devotee of Jesus, then I think I would like to do that. And she, she came, heard the gospel, didn't stumble over the externals, came to know Jesus. Then he says, our, my second group is to look at Jewish proselytes. To those under the law, um, newly submitted followers of Yeshua. Who is Yeshua? Jesus. Um, by the way, the name Isa al-Masi is the name of Jesus in, um, in the Quran. Isa al-Masi is also used by Palestinian Christians. Um, the word um, um, is not an evil word. It's just their changing of the word Yeshua to Esau. We change the word Yeshua into Jesus. We're just as far away as they are. So th- those who are newly proselytes of Islam are very difficult. Paul says, to Jewish proselytes, I become like a Jewish proselyte. And for a newly for a branded Mormon convert, we have to become as much like them as possible to be able to reach them because they're very difficult to reach so that they can be reached with good news. And so he says, I will do that even. To the proselytes, these are Gentiles who become like proselytes, I will become like a proselyte. And then he says... <clears throat> Those are to those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. Now, he's very clear to say, look, I am not obligated to keep all of these circumcision, dietary laws, temple ceremonies, Sabbath day, new moon festivals, all of these things he talks about explicitly in the, in the uh, book of Galatians and Colossians. He says, I'm not obligated to do it because I'm free. Those have been fulfilled in Jesus. Every one of those ceremonies point to Jesus, and they're fulfilled. But he says, I will voluntarily do them in order not to cause a stumbling block. And then he says, next, to those not having the law, I become like one not having the law. I become like one not having the law, though I am not free from, from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So he makes a little caveat here. He's saying, okay, I'm flexible, but I want to make sure that you understand principle as well. He says, I am not merely flexible, adjusting the standards, but I have a core. Um, Probably Dr. Dan Diffie has talked about the theological triage. There are certain things that are important and certain things that are less important. Paul says, let's stand firm on the core important principles of morality and of the person and work of Jesus and of the Trinity, and then everything else 
can be adjusted. He says, I am not free from the law. You know, here he means from the Torah, the principles of God's word from the Torah, because I am under the law of Christ. Now, what does he mean? What does he mean? Well, he says, I'm free from the externals of the Jewish law, but the core principles that Jesus taught, I remain following. Actually, it's a play on words. Um, He's saying, anomas, lawless, innomas, under the law of Christ, they translate it. But it really means, I am not lawless and rebellious with respect to God's principles. I am innomas, I am walking orderly, I'm walking in um, morality according to the wisdom of Christ. So there's his core. And then, so his next group then, he says, I... I, re- I want to reach the Jews, Jewish proselytes, those who newly minted Jewish proselytes. I um, want to reach the idol worshipers and realizing that I'm not obligated to adjust to their culture either. And then fourth, he says, I'm not obligated to adjust to the weak. Now, who are the weak? Because this is in verse um, 22. Now, if you read the context, the weak were those who are they have their consciences not yet trained that eating meat to offer to an idol is not evil. Now, in this context, he's not talking about believers. He's talking about unbelievers. So who are these weak? Most likely, it's Hellenistic, Hellenistic nominal Jews. What do I mean? Hellenistic means Greek-speaking nominal Jews that only want to stay worshiping Yahweh. And that's it. They, they don't really practice much. Sort of like secular Jews today. He says, to these guys who would be a little bit, um, you know, negative to um, me inviting them to um, a dinner where the meat had been sacrificed to an idol, I adjust my strategy to them. There's a lot of nominal Jews out there called secular Jews who may keep a little bit of kosher and are, are concerned about idolatry, we adjust all that we can do to reach them. So he's got four groups. He's got the Jews, Jewish proselytes, idol worshipers, Hellenistic Jews. He says, I have a core. I will never compromise the basic morality that Jesus taught. Now, by the way, Jesus taught the same morality as the Old Testament. There's great continuity. I will never compromise that. I will never compromise the person and work of Jesus and the Trinity. But everything else is pragmatically changeable. That that really really hits us hard. People have tried to apply this um, in what we call the megachurch movement. What have they done? They've tried to adjust to the um, baby boomers and then to the millennials and now to the Gen Zers and they change everything, but you know oftentimes what the mega church movement does? They compromise the core. Let's keep the core and adjust to the culture. And we need to. We're in, in America, America is changing rapidly. And our young people are growing up and leaving the church in droves. Now, the evangelical movement is declining slightly, but when they talk about all the People are leaving the church. They mean the nominal, um, mainline, unbelieving churches. And they are. They're leaving. 
there's a huge 9% drop. And it's been going on for decades. How are we going to reach these guys? We've got to do everything we can do externally to reach them without compromising the core. So in the near context, Paul goes back to this whole concept of I am free from all people. This is verse um, 22 and 23. He says, To the weak I have become weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. He goes back to that same idea. I'm flexible. But in the beginning he says, I want to save as many as possible. I want to save the many. Here he says, I want to save some. That seems like a contradiction. Well, I'll suggest this. The word some oftentimes can be translated certain or certain ones. I would suggest it means to save targeted ones. I become flexible to save as many as possible because I'm targeting specific ethno-linguistic groups, becoming like them, adjusting my lens prescription, so to speak, dressing like them, so that when they look at me, they don't see a foreigner. They see someone who is really trying to identify with them, and then when they stumble, they would stumble over Jesus in the cross. Paul ends up this whole section in chapter 10, verse 31. He says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you know, you, when you're eating and drinking with a Jew, you don't offer him a ham sandwich. Or with a Muslim, you don't offer him a glass of wine in a ham sandwich or whatever. He says, whether you eat or drink, be willing to compromise on all those things, or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Now, what's the glory of God? What is his plan? To fill the earth with his gospel of the kingdom, so that all nations, tongues, tribes, and peoples will be there at the throne, a great multitude that no one can, can count. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of the many, so that they may be saved. You can see the, the, he starts off with the desire to have a plan. He implements his plan. He is flexibly strategic to the four different groups as examples of how we should be flexible. And then he ends up saying, I want to reach these targeted ones with a specific strategy, a specific plan, and the goal is God's glory. Same theme from the beginning of of the book of uh, Genesis all the way to Revelation. His approach was what we would call missiologically an incarnational approach. It wasn't an imperialistic approach. Too often, okay, I just was in Korea, and I'm not going to be picking on Koreans because the Germans did it, the English did it, the Roman Catholics did it, the Greek Orthodox did it, but the Koreans have a tendency to plant churches around the world and make them look like little Korean churches. That's called an imperialistic approach. Okay, they weren't, they're not being an imperial power, but they're forcing their culture down upon the people. I've heard lots of stories of, like that. And I can name a lot of stories about what the English and the American missionaries did to in Africa. The, the Africans in Rwanda and Kenya and Burundi all wear a suit and a tie. Now, does anybody know what a tie was for? I, I came in with a tie and I said, no, saw that no one had a tie, so I took my tie off. You know what ties are for? Northern European climates 
where it's really cold. And so you put a scarf around your neck, and eventually that scarf became a tie. It makes you a lot warmer. Have you ever been in sub, um, Saharan Africa and preached with a suit, a wool suit, and a tie, and a long sleeve shirt on? Literally, the sweat is dripping down your back, and your armpits are just soaking wet. But where, where did they get that from? The English imposed it to them. They told me, said, um, Professor, the English told us that our culture was evil. You put on English glasses, and you drink tea at 10 o'clock, a spot of tea, and drink tea at 3 o'clock, and you dress like an Englishman. You ring the bells like the English church. You have a rectangular church like the English church. Has anybody ever seen an, uh, um, a Kenyan house out in the bush that's rectangular? Only Western style. They're all circular. Paul said, let's not be imperialist, let's be incarnational. America is changing immensely. And we can see how Paul, we uh, skipped over this here. We've talked about that. America has changed immensely in the last 40 years. 1965, a new immigration act, and we've uh, we've had something like 40 million, more than any other time in history of immigrants. Are we going to bemoan them, or are we going to reach them? I don't want to get into politics of it, but are we going to bemoan them, or are we going to reach them? Because if we don't reach them, they will reach us. Did you know that the Turks were let into the Eastern Roman Empire just as a little refugee group? They never were evangelized. They turned to Islam and conquered the Eastern Roman Empire all the way up to the gates of Vienna. And um, Ralph Winder points it out. He says, if we don't reach the barbarians, so to speak, okay, I'm not calling immigrants barbarians, but I'm saying he's talking about the German barbarians. The German barbarians were reached, but the Turks weren't. The Muslim Arabs conquered. No one ever reached them. They just called them heretics. He says, if we don't reach the barbarians, the barbarians will, will conquer us. Now, do we want to maintain a godly Christian culture? Yes. Then let's reach the immigrants. There's hundreds of thousands of different groups. In L.A., if you go to Los Angeles, you go to New York, you go to Chicago, um, you can find in L.A. in the, in the 80s, in the last time I checked, there was like 286 ethnic neighborhoods just in L.A. Are we reaching them? Are we targeting them? What about Phoenix? Did you know that down the street from um, Grand Canyon University is Al- Alhambra High School. By the way, Alhambra is an Arabic name. There's lots of Arabic words in Spanish. Why? Because the Muslims conquered the Spanish. The Spanish didn't reach them with the gospel. They kicked them out with the sword. Alhambra High School, Alhambra High School, has something like between 50 and 80 distinct languages spoken in that school. Are we reaching them? Are we targeting them? Interestingly enough, first and second generation immigrants like to be with their own people, in their own language. Third generation, however, assimilate. Are we reaching the assimilated into our community here? Are we targeting those in their own language groups in the, in the neighborhoods? Are we working with the refugees? Are we sh- sharing the gospel? If we don't, America will be changed forever. Maybe not for the good. 
American experiment succeeded as long as it was dominated by believing evangelical Christians. The American experiment is dying because we're not reaching our own people and the immigrants with the gospel. Let's pray.